This is Recorded Future, Inside Threat Intelligence for Cybersecurity. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Episode 78 of the Recorded Future podcast. I'm Dave Bittner from the CyberWire. Our guest today is Paul Kurtz. He's the co-founder and CEO of TrueStar Technology, a company that develops collaborative intelligence sharing platforms with the goal of streamlining the distribution of actionable information for cybersecurity professionals. Paul Kurtz began working in cybersecurity at the White House in the late 1990s and later served in senior positions relating to critical infrastructure and counterterrorism on the White House's National Security and Homeland Security Councils under Presidents Clinton and Bush. We'll hear his views on information sharing and threat intelligence, and we'll find out why he thinks that in the cyber realm, we may not be able to count on the government for protection. Stay with us. I spent a fair share of my career working on intelligence analysis, in other words, fusing data around national security problems. Uh, spent some time looking at um, weapons of mass destruction, nonproliferation, looking at countries like Iraq, Iran, and North Korea, and fusing data that we have from intelligence agencies in other countries to try to put together a picture of what was going on in each one of those countries regarding their weapons programs. And then I moved on to counterterrorism and was on the White House staff, the NSC, as a director of uh, counterterrorism leading up to the events around 9-11. And there I was uh, once again fusing data as to what we knew about terrorist activities, in particular al-Qaeda and uh, Osama bin Laden. This fusion challenge um, that we had in 9-11 uh, was uh, opened wide to me when I started looking at cyber security. And I picked cybersecurity up probably right around 2000, right after Y2K, well, leading into, you know, up to around 2003 or 2004. And I became very fixated on the idea that we really needed to develop a platform from the ground up that would allow us to manage cyber intelligence, share cyber intelligence, fuse that intelligence, and be able to do that in real time. In other words, not be able to say, oh, like today with Facebook, that we discovered a breach. Uh, or being able to yeah, say, oh, I'm going to wait for my attorney to come back to me and say, yeah, I had a problem. We needed to do something in real time. And so I started building TrueStar about four years ago. And today we have an active exchange of uh, data underway. So before we get to uh, the, the stuff that you're doing there at TrueStar, can you dig in a little bit and describe to us, I mean, what was the state of things in terms of sharing information before you started to take this on? Yeah, well, if you if you wind back the clock again and you look at uh, a document called PDD-63, that was a document signed actually by President Clinton in 1998. And President Clinton uh, advocated that each sector should set up an organization in order to share information. And and many sectors step uh, forward. Obviously, the financial sector was the first one to step forward. And and what, what we've, we've found since then is that people want to, so to speak, share information, but the value rendered back to those to share is 
is not necessarily high, and it's not necessarily high for a wide variety of reasons. Hmm. One is um, often it's just not timely. Two is it may be interesting, but it doesn't have context associated with it. And then three is is that often they get the data and they can't easily integrate it into their own defenses. So in other words, a list service sent out and you see, you know, a myriad of indicators uh, and you're like, oh, great. Now what? It sits in my email inbox. What do I do with that now? Or even if you look at the um, um, threat intelligence world where you have really good data that is potentially very useful, uh, a lot of companies still have a hard time ingesting that information. So sharing has always struggled and we focus so much on, you know, the idea of sharing really never kind of unpacked and said, okay, what are the steps we need to do in order to make this happen from a technology point of view, from a value add point of view to all those um, entities that might want to uh, participate in such an exchange. And we found a lot of pretty interesting surprises. And the one that was probably the most interesting was that in most every company you go into today, they have a hard time managing their own uh, data. In other words, their own cyber intelligence. They may be using a SIM. Uh, they may be using a ticketing system or a case management system. They may be using an orchestration platform. That's great. But at the end of the day, often they can't manage all of that awesome data that they have and be able to leverage that against data that might be available from like the FSI SAC or the ITI SAC or the retail ISAC or uh, proprietary feeds or government feeds. And so sorting out that problem inside of a company uh, was a big surprise to us. Uh, and so we spent a lot of time working on that problem. And so, d- I mean, describe to us, what did you come up with as a solution? Well, what we did at the end of the day is uh, figured, much like we've seen in other areas, say, for example, GitHub, um, where you have a wide variety of um, uh, players who might want to, you know, contribute uh, to developing code, to um, basically a repository of information. And so the way we solved that problem was to basically give um, our um, give the enterprise a, a private repository in order to put all their information in. And within that uh, repository, they, is, the data is automatically correlated. And then they can begin to see patterns in their own data setting aside any data that they may have from anywhere else, but they can understand their own data more effectively. They develop a canon or a chronology of everything that's happened inside their enterprise. That becomes immensely valuable to an analyst who is playing whack-a-mole every day. And then they can literally point, click, and select the external uh, data feeds that they find of interest. Mm-hmm. And that is automatically correlated with their own data. So that, that at the end of the day, um, Dave, sharing is not for just to share. We drive towards sharing because we're trying to drive down the mean time to respond and investigate events. Bottom line, that's what we're all after. We're trying to reduce the task and the time associated with getting to the bottom of the problem. And 
So you got to have that mechanism, that repository, that scalable system uh, in order to help you um, grapple with all the data you have. So this has really become an intelligence management problem at the end of the day. Now, how do you deal with what I would imagine are a number of roadblocks within any organization? And I'm thinking specifically of the folks in the legal department who might see, I could see going to them and saying, hey, we want to share this stuff with other people and them saying, have you lost your mind? No. You know, the, the easiest thing for them to say is no. Well, a couple of things have happened. You know, the first thing we think about is when you say, hey, I want to share information that I've been breached that does very much become uh, a challenge for the legal office uh, for counsel to look at but that's when you're starting that's when you're starting to look at the problem way too late what is far more interesting for everybody is to ingest all that data um, about suspicious events in other words um your your sim fires off an alert and says hey according to the rule sets you've given me um you should be looking at this. So the analyst looks at the data. Often they automatically create a ticket in one of the many uh, ticketing systems that are out there today. And then they begin to um, try to put two and two together. And they may not necessarily have remediated the problem yet or gotten to the bottom of the problem. You take that data and all of that uh, in real time goes into a repository. So it's suspicious event data. In other words, it's not a confirmed breach. You're starting to look at data much earlier in the, you know, the um, left of bang, so to speak, mm. um, not right of bang. If you look left of bang, we all have a much better chance of aggregating suspicious event data, discerning patterns, and taking action. And, and it's leveraging all the great tools that are out there today. I mean, there's great sims in the marketplace. There's great ticketing systems in the marketplace. There's awesome analysts in the marketplace, and all those analysts are populating tickets, and those tickets are ingested inside of a single enterprise, and so the enterprise does a much better job um, grabbing hold of, um, of interesting data for themselves. And so when we come to the legal issues, at the end of the day, a lot of the data that's being exchanged is not that Company X had a problem. It's just that Company X, without staying the name of the company, is seeing similar problems to what you're looking at. And the other thing that is quite interesting that's happened along on a separate track is we've been continuing to migrate to the cloud. And so I remember one of the first uh, companies we spoke to, they were very intrigued and they're like, this looks good, I would like an on-premise solution. And I said, well, that's not going to happen right now because, you know, we're a SaaS platform. And as the discussion went forward, I quickly learned that they were actually using a cloud-based email platform in order to uh, record all of their investigations. In other words, it was basically email, but it was a cloud-based email platform. And I said, well, wait a minute, you're putting all of your super sensitive information about your investigations in the cloud but yet you won't use a SaaS platform to correlate your own events. And we got around that because it was actually that eye-opening event because counsel said, you know what, you're right. And so when you step into a lot of different enterprises, they are leaning heavily on the cloud for a variety of reasons. So the legal challenges we've had in bringing, um, bringing companies 
uh, together or individually have been not nearly as significant as we thought four years ago. Now, you mentioned uh, being able to share uh, without sharing uh, names and so forth. So there's a certain amount of anonymity that goes along with this? Oh, absolutely. So so if you're a company and you use uh, um, uh, the platform, you um, all your data is ingested and it's, you know, it's not... Um, it's not redacted. It's um, it's sitting there for you to look at for it's correlated because obviously it's very interesting because if you're ingesting data in it look and you're looking at internal events and internal investigations along with events that are coming from your sim or analysis been put together by your analysts, um, you want to see that all run redacted. But if you begin to want to exchange that data with others, you can easily redact. Uh, so to speak, the PII or the corporate and proprietary information um, through we, uh, through natural language processing, uh, we uh, are able to redact that information uh, for you, and then you can send it on to another party. And you have, you know, you have other companies that say, for example, in the retail sector, um, there are companies that have joined together several years ago, and now they're getting more sophisticated and they're using repositories in order to put certain information from, you know, let's say uh, a score of their of the companies in the retail sector, and then that data is curated and it drops into another enclave, and then everybody else in the, uh, in the retail community can, so to speak, feed off of that data. And, of course, it's all anonymized, but they know it's gone through, if you will, a vetting process. And much of this data, by the way, um, is exchange via API. It's hmm. exchange in near real time. So when you think about analysts um, spending lots of time manually putting data into the system, those days are gone, um, and it simply won't work. So that's why workflow and understanding, hey, exactly what SIM are you using, uh, what case management system are you using, what orchestration platform are you using? Hey, and what what threat feed is of great interest to you? Are you using uh, Department of Homeland Security's AIS data? Are you using CISP data? Are you a member of the FSI SAC? Are you a member of the ITI SAC? Are you a member? Are you using one of the other awesome proprietary feeds that are out there today? I'm not going to name names, but there are a lot of really good intelligence feeds out there today. And then you grapple all that, and the individual company can take all that data, see it in their own uh, repository, and then um, they can begin to make decisions about what they want to share. But only then are they sharing, they're sharing only their data. They're not able to share the data that is coming from all those, if you will, third parties. Hmm. Now, I want to touch on threat intelligence with you, and specifically where you feel like it fits in when when companies are are aiming to defend themselves. What's the part that threat intelligence plays? Well, yeah. So the first the the first point is know thyself. Hmm. <laughs> you have to know what's going on inside your own four walls. You have to know. You know. You have to be able to have the data from your sim. You have to be able to understand what your critical assets are. You want to be able to understand the vulnerabilities that you have. That's good. And, and, and if you bring that together in one place, that makes the problem much easier. But then the question becomes, okay, what's going on around me? And that is where, you know, an intelligence-driven approach to security becomes exceptionally valuable. Because if you have 
additional insight from other parties that can give you really rich content and you can see that directly against your own data, that becomes hugely powerful to you to, once again, what's the bottom line? We're ultimately trying to drive down the time it takes to investigate an event and to remediate an event. And so if you can leverage that type of threat information from other parties, uh, it becomes exceptionally useful. And, you know, there's a lot of um, awesome intelligence that is out there today, but you, you talk to many companies and you're like, geez, I just, I can't use it effectively. In other words, I know this is super interesting content, but how does it, how does it measure up against what's going on in my, inside my, um, inside my company? Well, I can go to each of these individual platforms and I can look or these threat feeds and I can look and see, hey, is this, is this important? They can do that. And there's great insight to be found. All that takes time. And so if you're going to drive down time, you put your data in one place and then you see other relevant threat feeds um, correlated against your data and it becomes immensely powerful and uh, frankly takes a lot of the repetition out of the problem for the individual analysts and also helps managers, CFOs, understanding, you know, what is the value of um, these open source feeds? What is the value of these um, proprietary feeds? What is the value of uh, a feed coming from the U.S. government or USERT or whatever, whatever it might be? How do you recommend that, that companies dial in uh, when they're shopping for threat intelligence, trying to figure out what, what is the best fit? What's, what's the best, you know, like you say, there are lots of platforms out there. Um, how do I shop around from an informed point of view? Yeah, well, the, one of the first things I would consider looking at is the Cloud Security Alliance uh, released a paper around RSA this year, which uh, basically lays out some pretty practical guidances to um, how you go about a more intelligence-driven approach, including uh, threat feeds, uh, the selection of threat feeds. And, you know, their point is, you know, I, uh, stated probably far more clearly than I have here today of like, you know, you know start from the inside out. Um, look at your own data, aggregate your own data, and then understand what your particular needs are or what your use case is. So, for example, there are some threat feeds out there that are particularly focused on fraud. And if obviously you're trying to address fraud, well, you're going to be far more interested in those than may, maybe perhaps a feed that is more focused on a particular actor or actor set uh, in a more traditional cybersecurity sense. So you kind of want to make sure you're discussing with whomever you're um, selecting, um, to, whatever threat provider you're, you're turning to, you want to have that, okay, what are the problems I'm seeking to solve? Am I addressing fraud? Am I addressing traditional cybersecurity issues? Am I uh, addressing insider threat? Uh, am I assessing broader business risk? To what degree is physical security important to you? Um, remember that everybody's walking around uh, with cards around their necks and ID tags that give, grant them access to particular buildings, you know, access to computers, all those kind of things add up. So you've got to kind of look and understand what your own challenges are and then find those uh, sources that are of, of, of great value uh, or it can be of maximum value to you. And that's one of the places where we've really tried to be helpful where we integrate with uh, a lot of really 
valuable producers of threat intelligence. When, when we look at how at this platform that we've set up, we don't generate threat intelligence. But what mm. we do is correlate and fuse all the intelligence data that's out there with whatever is going on inside your system. And so I'm really careful to, you know, make sure to tell people, say, hey, understand the problems you're seeking to solve. And there are some pr- providers out there, threat providers that, you know, cover the, they, they cover the whole waterfront. I mean, they can handle fraud. They can handle cyber. Um, they can handle the more traditional business risk. They can handle physical. But there are some that are boutique and focused on a particular problem. I also think you want to understand the sourcing. Where is the data um, coming from? Is it timely? Is it, in other words, is it recent? Or the other big, big issue, uh, what context is associated with it? And Dave, I haven't talked about that enough because mm. often when people think about a threat intelligence or even sharing, it's far too much of a discussion around indicators and not enough of a discussion about what's the context around those indicators and understanding, you know, um, you know, when did this occur or what else was going on at the same time? Is this associated with, you know, other problems that people or researchers have previously identified? All those things become really important. Now, at the end of the day, there may be some level of curation and you say, hey, these are 100 really hot indicators um, that are exceptionally valuable today. And you obviously would want to adjust those. But there's the ephemeral nature of cyber intelligence, and that is one of the big problems that everybody has to deal with every day is, as you know, Dave, an IP address today could be super hot and bad, uh, but two weeks from now, it could be benign. Mm. Yeah, I'm curious, uh, when you look back at the time you spent in government and you kind of slowly wind that clock forward, what has that been like? How, How have you seen our capabilities evolve uh, to where we are today, and where do you think we're headed? Well, I think it's been really fits and starts. I think every time we have a a, a big um, breach, uh, we talk in terms of working together more, and, and the reality is at the end of the day that usually passes pretty fast. Um, and I also think at the same time that uh, we are 20, 25 years in in this battle, and we are conditioned, unfortunately, to buy a better mousetrap or what we think is going to do a better job um, catching the mice and catching the rats hmm. and, or a better firewall uh, to keep uh, the bad actors out. And at the end of the day, as we all know, it only takes one way in and it takes one vulnerability. And so our idea about digging a deeper moat, building a higher silo in order to protect ourselves really doesn't work. And culturally, I think we're having a hard time getting out of that mindset. I think within the past couple of years, I've started to see it change in largely because four or five years ago, um, the budgets for cybersecurity started going up Hmm. uh, substantially in enterprises and, and boards of directors started to figure it out and CISOs finally got the attention they needed. But now that we're four years in, they're starting to say, okay, well, this budget can't continue to go up. And CISOs are also being smart too. And they're saying, wait a minute, 
I'm buying this new widget or that widget that is supposed to help me, but ultimately it, it's failing. And it's not because there's, you know, a bunch of trash in the market. It's just because we, we are not collaborating and working with each other. And until we start building the capability in to exchange and collaborate in real time and understand intelligence in real time, we're going to get whacked. And I think a new mindset is starting to take hold. And so if you go back in time, going back to your question, Dave, if I look at prior to 9-11 and seeing FBI, CIA, NSA, DIA, you name the three-letter agency, trying to exchange data about what they knew about what Osama bin Laden was up to and Al-Qaeda's plans, it was um, you know, big silos with a nod to each other that they were going to help each other and exchange data. And we all know what happened. Mm. We also learned inside individual organizations, they couldn't fuse data. This is all documented in, in the 9-11 report that came out. Dave, the very same thing has been happening in cybersecurity since 9-11 but in cyberspace. And I think now people are understanding, especially with the, the uh, potential risks associated with um, critical infrastructure and can really uh, activity by Russia in, in 2016 in undermining our election process has really kind of kicked people in the gut. And now they're like, you know, what well, we really cannot continue to work on this as an individual company by company basis or an agency by agency basis. We have to be able to fuse data in real time. And I think that's starting to make a difference, but we have a long way to go. Well, one other point I would add is I think there are those out there who might say that, uh, that this follows a traditional security track or excuse me, traditional not, uh, national security track in that government will be able to provide for the common defense in, in a sense of the Cold War days or even the counterterrorism days or the WMD nonproliferation uh, activities that, you know, Uncle Sam and our allies and friends, we can work together and solve this problem. And the challenge with cyberspace is I really do think it fundamentally alters our approach to how we secure ourselves in that government is not well positioned to defend us. Um, they're not well positioned to do so because of privacy issues, uh, the authorities that they have, the, uh, the budget that is available, uh, but most importantly is that the attacks are happening at light speed, literal light speed. And the ability of government to step in and say to stop something that is, you know, is uh, directed at certain parts of our critical infrastructure, in other words, not directed at government assets, um, that becomes an exceptional challenge. And so the net at the end of the day is that the private sector is probably going to be the leader here. The private sector, if they are able to continue to build on the progress to date to exchange cyber intelligence in real time with each other, I think we'll have a much better chance. But if we're waiting for government to lead, we're going to fail. And it's not because government's bad. 
It's just because, you know, when you look at the complexities of the problem and how the private sector leans on these systems, our critical infrastructure, at least in the United States, is driven by the private sector. Government is not going to be able to provide for the common defense. We are going to have to do in the private sector a lion's share of the work. Our thanks to Paul Kurtz from TrueStar for joining us. Don't forget to sign up for the Recorded Future Cyber Daily email, where every day you'll receive the top results for trending technical indicators that are crossing the web. Cyber news, targeted industries, threat actors, exploited vulnerabilities, malware, suspicious IP addresses, and much more. You can find that at recordedfuture.com slash intel. We hope you've enjoyed the show and that you'll subscribe and help spread the word among your colleagues and online. The Recorded Future podcast team includes coordinating producer Amanda McKeown, executive producer Greg Barrett. The show is produced by Pratt Street Media with editor John Petrick, executive producer Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening.